I'm going to talk about two main things. I'm going to talk about Milton's traditional pulling together of all these sort of stories we're familiar with. His presentation of a traditional Satan that we find in Paradise Lost in the 1600s. And this portrayal of Satan that we have in Milton comes to influence a lot of subsequent depictions, including all kinds of art is based on Milton's Paradise Lost including some of those Blake ones we looked at last time with the giant demon. So in Paradise Lost, we have a traditional pulling together of a lot of what we're familiar with about the story of Satan. In Goethe, in the 1700s, on the other hand, we see represented what is beginning to be the breakdown of the traditional approach and the emergence of a ironic Satan. A Satan who is not as powerful as the traditional Satan. A Satan who has some of the medieval notions still a part of him, but he's a trickster Satan who never really succeeds at causing much trouble. And in a way, uh, we're seeing the emergence of modernism here and the impact of modernism on the depiction of Satan so that Satan is robbed of his power in the modern context is a way of putting it. So that's going to be our main point. Milton's Paradise Lost, traditional Satan. Mephistopheles in Goethe's Faust, the breakdown and ironic twist of some of the traditional things in a new way that you end up with a new type of Satan. A new type of Satan that continues to exist alongside the traditional Satan. And both can still be used subsequently. But in a way, Goethe's Faust is a little more representative of the modern notion of a harmless devil. Let me give you a little bit of context for Milton and then walk you through some of it. So Milton is living in revolutionary England in the mid-1600s. In revolutionary England, remember that England was part of those reformations. Henry VIII back in the 1500s adopted a form of reformation and formed his own state church separated himself from the papacy as a political power. That was his main reason for doing it. Then within England, Puritanism arises, and they're the ones that end up founding America initially, at least in New England. So the Puritans are a Protestant sect that is most prevalent in the revolutionary period. And they're wanting to purify the Anglican church, purify what used to be the Roman Catholic church, but now is the English church. They want to purify it, Puritans. So he's living in that context, and he's in that he's a Puritan, Milton. He's one of these Protestant Puritans. What he is doing here, in general, is rationalizing and systematizing a lot of the stories of Satan into this massive poem he writes. Just one big poem, Paradise Lost. He's very familiar with all the different stories you have been familiar with, at least the ones that are canonical, and the ones that made their way into literature in the Middle Ages. He knows the book of Revelation. He knows the different images of Satan. He knows Leviathan in the Hebrew Bible. He knows the adversary figure in Job. Pulling even more material together into one massive poem story of who Satan is and of what he's all about. And this is really the convergence and culmination of earlier traditions, as I'm saying. Let's walk through some of the material you read just to see what I mean by 
the way in which he's portraying a traditional Satan by pulling together so many things. Even though it's a new formulation in the sense that uh, this poem comes to influence other depictions. It's a new configuration of things, but in a way it's quite traditional in what it's pulling together. Let me walk you through some of it. First of all, the poem begins with Satan having fallen and talking about what has happened. So the poem begins with Satan and his demons, or the fallen angel and his fellow fallen angels, looking back at the situation they're in, recollecting what has happened. By the way, already in this poem, there's something different than the traditional stories we've seen in the sense that the fall of Satan is pushed back even earlier. Remember with the life of Adam and Eve that the story of Satan got pushed back to the Garden of Eden? And before that, we didn't really have the snake in the garden as Satan? And before that, it was the flood period was when the fallen angels fell? And so in the life of Adam and Eve, there's a story of Satan being jealous of Adam having all the attention, and that that's when he fell. Well, this puts it even further back. It's before Adam and Eve are created that the fall happens. So that's not traditional, even though so many traditional things are being pulled together in this poem. There's that sort of new element of being even further back in time. It's before humanity is created that this is happening and Satan and his fellow fallen angels are recollecting what has happened. So take a look at that first section. By the way, it's in here that Milton expresses his thesis, or rather, his motivation for writing. At the end of that paragraph, there's the whole spiel about man's first disobedience, looking forward to what's going to happen in the story, and then Milton explaining why he's writing, to justify the ways of God to men. He sees this retelling of the story of Satan in relation to Christ and the fall of man and the return to paradise that he's going to write after this poem as a way of justifying what God has done. So he's rationalizing the story of Satan in a way that wasn't quite done before. He's trying to explain why God did something and show why it's rational. Justify what God has done. It then goes straight into recollecting things about the infernal serpent towards the bottom of page three. He it was whose guile stirred up with envy and revenge. There's those motivations we're familiar with from the traditional stories earlier on. Envy, revenge. Deceived the mother of mankind, what time his pride had cast him out from heaven with all his host of rebel angels by whose aid aspiring to set himself in glory above his peers. He trusted to have equaled the most high. What does that ring of, traditionally speaking? The king of Tyre and the king of Egypt in Isaiah, this, this idea of those kings grasping for God's status when they're gods. And then that got attached to Satan's story quite early on. And here it's really coming through uh, quite strongly. He trusted to have equaled the Most High if he opposed with the ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God, raised in pious war in heaven and battle proud with vain attempt. Him the almighty power hurled headlong, flaming from the ethereal sky. So there was a battle before ever humans were created. This is describing the angel hurling from the heavens. 
with hideous ruin and combustion down, to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire, whose durst defy the omnipotent, the omnipotent to arms. There's the sort of Dante-like picture of being in the ground. Nine times the space that measures day and night to mortal men, he with his horrid crew lay vanquished, rolling in the fiery gulf, confounded though immortal, but his doom reserved him to more wrath, for now the thought both of, of lost happiness and lasting pain. This is an interesting twist in this traditional Satan, is there's a little bit of sympathy in the manner in which Milton tells the story could lead the reader to head towards some sympathy for this figure. Lost happiness and lasting pain. Interesting way of talking about his situation. Not deserved punishment. Round he throws his baleful eyes that witness huge affliction and dismay mixed with obdurate pride and steadfast hate. Characteristics of Satan. Pride, hate, envy, revenge. These are recurrent characteristics of Satan here that are building on the traditional view that we're quite familiar with. At once as far as angels can, he views the dismal situation waste and wild, a dungeon horrible on all sides round, as one great furnace flamed, yet from those flames no light, but rather darkness visible, served only to discover sights of woe, regions of sorrow, doleful shades, where peace and rest can never dwell, hope never comes, that comes to all, but torture without end. The image of eternal torture for Satan here the characterization of his new situation after the fall. What happens next, there it's Milton characterizing the situation. He then gets into dialogues, doesn't he, between Satan and other fallen angels who are identified with pagan gods. So we've got a bit of Justin Martyr here. Remember that way back with Justin Martyr, the idea of identifying the Greek and Roman gods with demons. Well, he builds this right into the whole depiction he has. But here initially, it's Satan discussing with Beelzebub, the prince of flies. Sometimes we had in our history of Satan so far, Beelzebub is just an interchangeable name for Satan. But here, they're two figures. And there have been some earlier materials that there were multiple sort of demon figures talking to one another in a similar manner. There's a bit of mourning going on about how changed we are now that we've fallen. That's what's coming across here in the dialogue between Satan and Beelzebub. But they have hope, even though things have changed seemingly for the worse. Look towards the bottom there, Satan talking to Beelzebub. I'm near line 104. In dubious battle on the plains of heaven and shook his throne, though the field be lost, all is not lost. The unconquerable will and study of revenge, immortal hate, and courage never to submit or yield. Revenge, hate, and refusal to submit or yield. They're developing a plan here for eternal war with God. Now that they've been cast out of heaven, the plan is to develop eternal war with God. They're never going to give in. Satan's never going to give in, he's saying. He's going to keep fighting. Look at lines 159 and following. This is Satan talking at this point. And Satan is expressing Milton's notion of what Satan's function is within God's overall plan, in a way. 
fallen cherub, to be weak is miserable, doing or suffering. But of this be sure, to do aught good never will be our task. But ever to do ill our sole delight. As being the contrary to his high will, whom we resist, if then his providence out of our evil seek to bring forth good, our labor must be to pervert that end, and out of good still find means of evil, the counterplan. Remember, Augustine had this strongly. Augustine had the idea of God working good through what Satan does. That even though Satan attempts to do evil, God turns it around for good. That's being alluded to here, and then Satan saying, even if that seems to be the case, we're going to find a way to turn it back again. It's obviously a futile expectation that Milton wants you to recognize here. That Satan is deluded into believing he can do something he can't. But it's interesting to see the depiction of Satan in the process. You then get a description of Satan at the bottom of page 7. Thus Satan talking to his nearest mate Beelzebub, with head uplift above the wave and eyes that sparkling blazed, his other parts besides, prone on the flood, extended long and large, lay floating many a rood in bulk as huge, as whom the fables name of monstrous size. He's now going to be bringing in the traditional combat myth into this poem associated with Satan. Monstrous size. Titanium, or earthborn, that ward on Jove, a Roman god. Briarios, or Typhon. Typhon is a serpent-like god that Zeus battles with in Greek mythology, whom the den by ancient Tarsus held, or that sea beast, Leviathan. Milton knows about the combat myth and knows all different examples of it and brings them together here in just one little segment of his poem. He knows what you were taught early on, that Satan is the embodiment, in part, of the combat myth that existed way back, even in Greek mythology. Or we know even Mesopotamian. He's not citing the Mesopotamian examples. Leviathan from the Hebrew Bible he's citing. Which God of all his works created hugest that swim the ocean stream, him happily slumbering on the Norway foam, the pilot of some small night foundered skiff. Look at his lament, trying to draw out in the reader a little bit of sympathy, even though he's an archfiend. There's this little twist sometimes of this sympathy for the devil that will actually be more prominent in subsequent centuries. Here's Satan talking here. Line 249. Farewell, happy fields of heaven, right? Where joy forever dwells. Hail horrors, hail infernal world, and thou profoundest hell. Receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. You know what? I'm going to make the best of my new situation. I can make hell my heaven, is the other deluded statement here. You're supposed to have a little bit of sympathy for him. This is unusual in the traditional forms of Satan. But nonetheless, overall, it's a traditional Satan. I'm just pointing out some of the beginning of the breaks, cracks in the traditional Satan, even though this is sort of the, the height of the expression of it. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. A little further down the same page, famous one that Al Pacino quoted in, the, in his little uh, 
speech there. Sort of summarizes the motivation and intention and character of Satan, that one phrase in a way. So it's a good one to remember. But look here, the sort of first Enoch type material that has somehow come down to Milton. Not necessarily directly from first Enoch, because we only rediscovered first Enoch in the modern period. But uh, the stuff from it has sort of become integrated within the story of Satan in other, in other literature. Look at lines 316. And powers that erst in heaven sat on thrones, though of their names and heavenly records now be no memorial, blotted out and raised by their rebellion from the books of life. So the fallen angels are blotted out from the book of life because of their rebellion. Nor had they yet among the sons of Eve got them new names till wandering o'er the earth. Through God's high sufferance for the trial of man, by falsities and lies, the greatest part of mankind they corrupted to forsake God their creator and the invisible glory of him that made them to transform oft to the image of a brute, adorned with gay religions full of pomp and gold and devils to adore for deities. What I'm talking about here is the idea of these fallen angels bringing falsities and lies and corrupting humanity which is at the heart of that first Enoch fallen angel story. Remember the teaching of things they should not have taught? The corrupted humanity? Sort of recollected here in, in an indirect way. But also, the idea that Justin Martyr had, and that some other early materials had, that these demons are the equivalent, these fallen angels are the equivalent of the gods that other peoples worshipped. Various idols through their heathen world. Then were they known to men by various names, names of the gods, and various idols, referring to uh, Greek and Roman worship here, through the heathen world. What happens next is he explains all the gods that correspond to these fallen angels. So on the next page you have Moloch, a Canaanite deity, being brought in explicitly by Milton, referring to human sacrifice in that connection. Kamos, Peor, Balaam, Ashtoreth. These are all Canaanite and other deities of the ancient world that are here being associated with each of the fallen angels. In other words, the fallen angels are attributed the idea that they fooled humanity into believing they were gods back in the old days, like Justin Martyr argued back in about 150 CE. That goes on for quite a few pages. Astarte, Adonis, Dagon, Osiris, Isis, and Horus. Belial, who's another one of these fallen angels. Sometimes we know that that's a synonym for Satan, but here it's seen as a, a separate fallen angel. The Ionians' gods, Titan, Saturn, Azazel. That comes from first Enoch, but what root it came to Milton, unclear. Look on page 18 for another description of Satan. Line 589 on page 18. Their dread commander, he's finally coming back to Satan after going through the description of all these other gods slash fallen angels. Their dread commander, he above the rest, in shape and gesture proudly eminent, stood like a tower. His form had yet not lost all her original brightness. Milton has the idea of the initial fall immediately changes Satan in terms of his beauty. He was beautiful. He's a beautiful angel but he's already changed by the fall. 
But it's a gradual change that continues after he's fallen. So it's Milton describing Satan here as opposed to them talking, right? As opposed to the demonic figures talking. In shape and gesture proudly eminent stood like a tower. His form had yet not lost all her original brightness, nor appeared less than an archangel ruined, and the excess of glory obscured, as when the sun new risen looks through the horizontal misty air, shorn of his beams, or, or from behind the moon, in dim eclipse, disastrous twilight sheds. So he's starting to lose the brightness of the angel he was. Darkened so, yet shone above them all the archangel, but his face deep scars of thunder had entrenched. The fall damaged him. And care sat on his faded cheek, but under brows of dauntless courage and considerate pride, but pride awaiting revenge, cruel his eye, but cast signs of remorse and passion to behold. The fellows of his crime, the followers rather, far other, once beheld in bliss, condemned forever now to have their lot in pain, millions of spirits for his fault immersed of heaven and from eternal splendors flung for his revolt, yet faithful how they stood, their glory withered. In book two, we have a council of these demonic figures that were the fallen angels that were described in the previous book. They're meeting together like the heavenly council in Job that you read about in Beale. But it's obviously sort of anti-council, isn't it? It's all demons. And Satan is the god of the underworld. Satan is the main guy here in this council. And they're trying to decide what to do, aren't they? And each of the different fallen angels, each of the demons slash gods, have a different answer on what to do. They all agree they've got to get at God and, and, and damage God. But the question is, what is the best way to undermine God? Satan starts by saying, let's do a huge war. Moloch says, yes, let's go to war. You're right. Belial says, wait a minute, you guys. Didn't we just lose a war? Isn't that when we got cast out of heaven? What makes you think we can win the next war? He's hesitant about it. He talks about how God and heaven is impregnable. So how are we going to do that? He's our great enemy. He's pretty powerful, God is. Belial tries to talk some sense into the rest of the fallen angels here. And he says he dissuades Satan away from war, all out war. Mammon, the next god slash fallen angel, says, let's sit around here and be content with what we've got. At least we've got a place to live. This is sort of like what Satan was saying earlier. This is heaven enough for me just to not have to answer to God anymore. We've got our own place. Let's just sit around. And some envy is expressed on Mammon's part. Eternity so spent and worship paid to whom we hate, let us not then pursue by force impossible, by leave obtained, unacceptable, though in heaven our state of splendid vassalage, but rather seek our own good from ourselves and from our own live to ourselves, though in this vast recess, free. Freedom rather than subservience to God. Finally, Beelzebub speaks up. And it's his tactic that's taken on. He says this, Hell ain't so great, mammon. We've got to have a better strategy than sitting around and just taking what we've got. Because eventually God's going to start ruling over hell too. And then we'll be back into vassalage. Beelzebub argues that we need to find a more strategic way 
to fight God. Not all-out battle, but a strategy. The strategy is, let's get the humans that we hear rumor of, God is creating. The image of God that he is going to create that we've heard about. They haven't been created yet. All this happens before man is created, but they've had rumor of it. Line 345. What if we find some easier enterprise? There is a place, another world, the happy seat of some new race called man, about this time to be created like to us, though less in power and excellence, but favored more. God likes them more, we've heard. This sounds a lot like the life of Adam and Eve, Satan, doesn't it? Being pulled together into this poem. But here it's Beelzebub, the assistant to Satan. But favored more of him who rules above, so was his will pronounced among the gods, and by an oath that shook heaven's whole circumference, confirmed. From there let us bend all our thoughts to learn what creatures there inhabit, of what mold our substance, how endued, and what their power, and where their weakness, how attempted best by force or subtlety. Let's get to know these creatures we've created things that we've heard God is going to make. Let's get to know them so much that we can sabotage God's whole plan. That's the advice that Satan does take from Beelzebub. That's the Satan of Milton's Paradise Lost that spends his whole energies at trying to sabotage God through humanity. Top of 34. To waste his whole creation is the aim of this, or possess all as our own, and drive as we were driven, the puny inhabitants, or if not drive, seduce them to our party. Let's cast humans out in the way God cast us out, or at least get them on Satan's side. That their God may prove their foe, and with repenting hand abolish his own works. This would surpass common revenge and interrupt his joy in our confusion and our joy upraise in his disturbance when his darling sons, humanity, hurled headlong to partake with us shall curse their frail original and faded bliss, faded so soon. They will fade like we faded. They will lose the paradise they had like we lost the paradise we had. Let's pull them down with us and sabotage God's plan. That's in essence what happens next. Satan goes to Eve and then it expands on that story of the temptation of Eve. He comes as a toad and gives her some thoughts. He comes as a snake and tempts her to take the apple from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And the fall happens. And so this is what Milton's aiming to explain, the fall, how humanity fell. And it's at the heart of it is the traditional Satan, isn't it? He then writes a later poem called Paradise Regained which explains the second Adam, Christ. It's a poem about the second Adam, a new human being that succeeds in rectifying what Satan managed to sabotage and actually defeats Satan's whole plan in the process. Right? So that's what that whole next poem is about, and Russell explains some of that in the chapter. Right? We somewhat raced through it, but hopefully I went slow enough that you sort of were able to see key passages that help you understand some of what's going on here. 
We saw the book of Revelation being drawn in. We saw things from First Enoch being drawn in. We saw things from the Hebrew Bible about combat myth being drawn in. Even combat myths outside of the Hebrew Bible being brought in. We saw the story of the angels being punished, being brought in. A lot of the traditional material you guys are all familiar with now, put together in a particular new way, with a slight twist that gives a little bit of sympathy for the devil, even though it's not the prominent theme. You feel sorry for this figure when you're reading this poem. But in general, it's a traditional Satan. And this massive poem influences subsequent traditional understandings of Satan, even though traditional Satan starts to go out of vogue in the 1700s coming up.